hey, y'all want to stand and pray for us? Let's do that. That'll feel like I resetted the clock. There's no such word as resetted, but I can make them up. I preached a whole message one time and kept saying Jesus's. There's no such word as Jesus's. I saw my pastor kept going, and I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't have such a grasp on the English language. Holy God, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Holy One, it's a high honor to be in your presence today. Lord, we're asking that you would anoint the hearts of the people, that this would not just be a message that they hear. Lord God, that it would be a message that forms the fabric of their Christian walk. Lord, that they would take these golden nuggets that you have given me and make beautiful vessels to be full of your work with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning is February 7th. It's 2010, and uh, as usual, we have a message that I think was birthed from God, and about half the people that should hear it are not here. There is an enemy that we're fighting with. I'm praising you for being here. That is an awesome thing. How many people have you seen in the last three weeks break down in tears in here, come to an altar, stand up and proclaim, I am with you, and they're not here today? This is the way that the church has always been. And it just is. Uh, people are fickle. That's why we're compared to sheep in the Bible. We have to determine in our hearts to not be this way. That when we're hurt, we run to fellowship, not away from it. That when we are experiencing difficulty, we find strength in the body of believers and not in the solace of our quiet bedrooms. Okay? This is a unique problem to America. In other places, when you have a problem, they figure it's the village's problem. <laughs> they all take ownership of it. But we triumph individually. We fall individually. Everything is me, 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 me. And I'm telling you, it must be broken. There is no way to explain supernatural words being given to people Tears streaming down their face. Them say, you're right, and that was Jesus, and I will, I'm going to be there next week. And then them not be here. Week after week, other than God's people are pathetically fickle. And the only thing that changes this is to set your heart, mind, will upon the king and be filled with his power. Because but for the grace of God, there go I. Which one of us has not fallen prey to the very same thing? But you must set in your heart right now, from this point forward, never again. I watched Matthew Pirro lay in the back of a church one time when he was unable to move. I mean, he literally was carried into the church. But he didn't have to be carried out of the church. We learn from these things. This morning is called, Do This. Right? How about that for a uh, complicated message title? It comes right out of the words of Jesus. Do this. If you want to put a subtitle to it, it's deed-based evangelism. Where you need to be turning at the moment is Luke 10. I want to recap the last several messages for you. We preached about sacrificial songs at the beginning of the year. This was a time in which we talked about difficulty, tragedy, and the beautiful things that come out of tragedy that are still blessing us today. When you hear the song, Just As I Am, or you hear, It Is Well With My Soul, 
These were people's gut-wrenching, terrific tragedies. And because God met their need in that tragedy, in some cases more than a hundred years later, we are still benefiting from that. So what do you think God wants to do with your life? Deliver you from tragedies. Then we moved on to radical revolution. This took a look at the need to rethink the very roots and foundations of what it means to be a Christian. To turn around completely and in a short period of time an overthrow of our present power structure so that we could walk in authentic Christianity. We moved on to keeping step. This was a message about the need to be born again, but more than that, the need to be filled with God's power and walk as He walked. Our next message was A to Z, apathy to zeal. It was about moving you from an emotionless adherence to dry, dead religion to a passionate pursuit for the manifest zeal of God. Last Sunday's message was 4% ABCs. We talked about the flood of dissipation that has overwhelmed our youth and the need to put action-based Christianity into practice to stem the tide. When you begin to put these things together, not to mention all of the other messages that were preached on repentance and empowerment. People like Gabe Mays and Steve stood up and all encouraged us to the same thing. What becomes clear is that the Spirit is preparing us for greater works. The importance of sacrifice, radical repentance, staying in step with the Spirit, being in passion for God's work, and understanding the urgency of this hour are all prerequisites for a greater manifestation of His kingdom. I never intended to preach a series, and yet it turned into a series. If you were sitting down with someone for the very first time, and you needed to share with them the gospel, that is what it would sound like. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit from the beginning of the year to begin to move us in this direction. Well, today really ought to complete this. I want to tell you about a book called The Cry of Mordecai. Soon, it's written by Robert Stern, soon it will be in our library, but first Matthew and I have to, have to finish it. Here is a quote from the 25th page. Men and women throughout history and today have chosen to make a difference in their world, both for good and for evil. Have you ever thought about how the monumental events of history are inextricably linked with names, faces, and life stories of the commonplace flesh and blood people. No one can tell their children the story of the American Revolution without mentioning the name of Paul Revere. I mean, you can't tell the story without mentioning And what did he do? We rode a horse from one place to another. That doesn't sound extraordinary, does it? But he's inextricably linked to a greater message, a greater good. It is impossible to remember the events of 9-11 without envisioning the passport photos of 19 hijackers who flew their plane into the Twin Towers. One individual life matters. One individual choice makes a difference. My life, your life, our lives, and the choices we make every day about how we use the gift of life God has given us make so much more of an impact than we realize. Sounds like this man was a part of our ministry, doesn't it? For better or worse, history really does change 
Because regular, everyday people, mothers, fathers, workers, teachers, grandparents, make decisions to use the resources they have been given to affect change in the world around them. Hear this last quote. The doors of history hinge on the extraordinary decisions made by ordinary people. The doors of history hinge upon the extraordinary decisions made by ordinary people. Have you ever heard that Martin Luther King is the father of the civil rights movement? Did it start with Martin Luther King, really? Because I thought there was a little old black lady who didn't speak, who didn't stand up and orate, who never did anything except refuse to be moved. And when she refused to be moved, now Rosa Parks is intertwined in a, a way that can't be undone with one of the largest social change movements in our nation's history. I'm curious, what does God want to do with you? I don't know what Rosa Parks believed about a lot of things, but I know she believed that it was not right for her to give up her seat. And I know that because she refused to give it up. I want to wager with you that I can tell you what you really believe by examining your life. I want to wager with you that many times American Christianity has said, we believe this, but there was no action to support it. In fact, the actions went the other way. And I am through with that kind of living. Every message that you will ever hear from me will have this in, in it. If you believe God heals, then why is the first thing that you do is drive 100 miles an hour to a health provider? Why is it not hit your knees? If you believe God will provide, why have you bitten the skin off of your fingers around your fingernails worrying about it? If you believe that God is your source, why are you stingy towards your brothers and the poor? In Luke 10, we begin to see a solution to this. In Luke 10, we're going to pick up in the first verse. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. You need to know that the king of the universe appointed you. He starts with 12, later he appoints 72. Here, he's appointed you or you wouldn't be here. This is a divine appointment. That means that of all the places you could be on a Sunday morning, of all the churches you could be in, of all of the better looking, better speaking, better equipped, better, 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 God appointed you to be here. Now you need to ask why. Why? What are the prevailing themes in this ministry? What is the prevailing example being placed before you? What is the Spirit saying to you in this place? Because God appointed you to be here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of Him to every town and place where He was about to go. He sent them two by two. Everything that the Lord did, everything that the Lord does today, is referenced in a covenant. They already were in covenant with Yahweh God by way of their trust in Jesus. But He still sent them in pairs. We have to destroy the idea that in America everything is done on an individual basis. It is not. Self-sufficiency is something that God cannot work in. He appoints us to work two by two. The most common example of this is a husband and a wife. 
But here, there are no husbands and wives mentioned. You have no idea whether they have many kids, few kids, married, not married, and yet God still paired them off with someone. There is something that happens when you begin to share your life with someone else. There's a strengthening, a sharpening. We cannot be isolated and do the work of God. You cannot be isolated even as a family and do the work of God. The most destructive thing that ever happened to my family was not alcohol. It was not drugs. It was not so many other things that I could name. There were time periods in my family history where they were completely isolated. Had no real relationships with anybody except superficial ones with neighbors. God did not design us to live this way. Because the work of God cannot be seen in an aquarium from the outside looking in. It doesn't work that way. It's experienced. It's interacted with as we rub shoulders with one another. As we're in the marketplace. As we're in the places where all the people are in the midst of their trouble, but not being troubled. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. <laughs> the harvest is plentiful. Is that a problem? Well, it's both a problem and it's a blessing, isn't it? The problem is enormous. There's much more out there that can be gathered than can be brought in. That sounds like a problem, but what is it also? An enormous opportunity. You could work all day and night doing this, and as much as you're willing to work, you will reap. That's the situation with the world around us. There are broken, hurt lives everywhere you look. It's plentiful. But the workers are few. It's funny, you could say the believers are plentiful, but the workers are few. The believers are innumerable, but the workers are few. Those who know how to say the right thing, who know how to attend church in the right way, who know how to tip God in the offering box in the right way, are plentiful. But those who will get out and work are few. I read an email report from a pastor that I went to meet with not long ago. He does streetscape ministries downtown. Downtown Galveston. A pastor shows up that hasn't been there in a brand new Camaro. Gets out of the Camaro and is singing a worship song with all of the people who live on the street, because it's a street ministry. We bow our head. We bend our knee to the God of Jacob. Lord, we cast down our idols. Same song we sang today. And then got mad people were touching his car. Oh, God. The believers are plentiful. The workers are few. I am telling you that the work of man is to believe on the Son, and belief on the Son is demonstrated in our deeds every day. So I'm going to ask you, did you go to work on Monday? Did you go to work on Tuesday? Did you go to work on Wednesday? Are you working for the King? Or have you simply acknowledged the doctrine and now you feel good? It will not work that way. Our God will not tolerate it. There are more of those than can be counted. But the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Dear God, please don't send out just believers. Dear God, please don't send out those who acknowledge your word but don't do it. 
Send out people who will work the harvest. And what is the harvest? Broken lives around us, and the longer you leave them there, the more rotten they become. Better get to them quick. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Lord, why would you send us like lambs among wolves? If you go in your strength, with your wealth, with your abilities, with your, 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 it is your harvest. If you go out in weakness, in trembling, in fear, in insecurity, and you allow Him to be your competency, Him to be your power, Him to be your fuel, the harvest belongs to Him. And it's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. His all-surpassing power is in these jars of clay. People will begin to realize it is not possible for Lindsay to have done what she did in that woman's life unless God empowered her to do it. How do we know that? Because a thousand other people walked right by her and didn't care. We always think we would be the one that would run into the burning building. But there are people that are on fire all around us and we sit in silence. I'm telling you, I feel the Spirit saying no more. I stood in this parking lot the other day and told a man, denounced him to his face, he was a coward. Say, Eric, that's a mean thing to do to somebody. No, I thought he was on fire. And if he didn't get into the pool, the life-giving water of Siloam, he would burn in hell. How gentle do you want to be when you yell, Hosanna, save me. Save me, Lord, but save me in a way that's pleasing to me. Save me, Lord, but do it without embarrassing me. Save me, Lord. How many of you know that if you go rescue somebody who's drowning, you might get beat up in the process? That's right. It's the first thing that they teach lifeguards. Because drowning people don't know how to do anything but flail. Saints, if you want to work in the harvest field, you better put on the armor of Christ. Doormat Ministries is full swing right here. Nearly everybody that I have ever, in a sincere, loving way, reached out to help in their life first insulted me and my family. Nearly everybody. That means many of you sitting right here. This is how it works. People don't know what's good for them. And they resent you telling them until they taste of the Lord and see that it's good. I did the same thing. Exact same thing. This is the way that it works. The wheat fights back. It doesn't necessarily want to be harvested right away. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. What an amazing statement that is. He is communicating a tremendous sense of urgency. I'm telling you right now, and right now you need to go. Don't wait. Don't go back home. Don't go count your money. Don't bring extra bags. Don't go get anything. Just do what I'm telling you to do. The last time I heard of that kind of urgency, it was in Exodus 12. The spirit of death was descending upon Egypt. God said, I want you to do this, but you do it with your cloak tucked in your belt your sandals on your feet. You eat this in haste because it is the Lord's Passover. The kind of message that He's conveying to these men is death is descended upon everybody that you see. If we don't go harvest them now, they die. So don't wait. Go. 
Let me ask you, when's the last time you felt that kind of urgency? Stir it up, saints. We fan this into flame. You cannot walk into Walmart and watch thousands of people march to hell the whole while believing that they're saved. We cannot do it. And if you don't pray for opportunity, if you don't look for opportunity, if you don't swing the pendulum away from, I'll witness if God tells me to, to, I won't witness if He doesn't want me to. I probably didn't say that right, but you know what I mean. You should be told, hey, hey, this one's not ready. You should not have to be told, please, would you? I mean, if I encourage you or send you some money in the mail, would you go witness to this one? You shouldn't have to be told that. I shouldn't have to be told that. Funny thing, since I began praying about this in December, every day that goes by I'm finding someone. Every day that goes by. Some of them find themselves crying in my presence. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I said, I do. I'm a man of appointment and Jesus sent me here. And yet, where are they this morning? I'm mourning three commitments from people to be here in this service this morning. And they're not here. Congratulations that you made it. How many people looked you in the eye, recognized God's appointment in their lives this week, and have a chance to answer that call? Are we just boat riding? Are we just out on the sea of humanity looking around, unmoved by the dying people? When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. The first thing that we bring into people's lives is an example that all is right between God and man. When you go minister to somebody, if Darren comes to minister to me, the first thing that should happen is I begin to see a sense in Darren's life that he's right with God. That he's right with the people that are around him. This means the world cannot see your witness if you were mad at your neighbor. It means that the world cannot see a witness in you if you are hostile and frustrated with everyone. But you just don't understand. No, I don't think you do. They're dying. Get over yourself and help. Get over yourself and help. What problem do we have that warrants us crossing our arms mad at our neighbor while the other neighbors are going to hell? What problem? Think about the last few things that caused you to lose the peace of God. Which one of them is worth a human life? You don't think people can make a difference? How about Irina Sindler? Oh, she didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize. Al Gore got that one. But she saved thousands of babies. She saved thousands of babies by deciding the very first time, I'm not going to let this one die. If I have to hide him in a briefcase, I will. She began to care. I'm asking you to fan into flame some concern for your fellow human beings. Otherwise, we are what we preach against. We're a bless me club. If our heart doesn't hurt for those who are on fire, for those that are hungry, for those that don't have shelter, for those that are in prison, for those that have been nothing but lied to and oppressed, then how can we be like Christ? Because His heart hurts for them. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Stay in the assignment the Lord's given you. It's raining today, so you want to go do something different. Get over it. 
People of God are going to endure hardships. I know your jobs are hard. People are mean to you. If they're not flogging you and nailing you to a cross, you haven't risen to the level of love that Jesus has. Quit whining. One of the best things that I ever heard was a young man who was a friend of mine in my life who I thought similarly to him, goes to an elder in our church and he says, I'm praying for a new job. He says, why? He says, well, this and this and this is wrong. He says, I've known you now three years. You've never kept a job for more than about a year. He said, I think that says more about you than it says about your job. I was offended with the young man, right? He didn't even listen. He didn't even care. Well, one thing Charles Brown knew when he looked at the young man is he hadn't been crucified yet. How bad could it be? See, we can develop a fickle nature that runs from everything that's difficult. I praise God for men of God in my life who stood up and said, it is right that you would suffer. It shows God's glory upon you. Why do you shy away from it? Why are you looking for only the easiest path? Is this what the apostles did? Is it what Jesus did? We want the power they had, but we do not want to do what they did. Verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them. You know that's the first time you're told to tell anybody anything? After you've been declared a worker, gone out into the harvest, after they have seen the peace of God in your life, after you have ministered in the midst of their trouble, peace, then you begin to heal the sick. You begin to demonstrate godly things. And then you tell them. We have this backwards. We say, Jesus loves you, David. And in three seconds, you can become a child of his. Pray after me. Okay, we're done. So, well, what kind of man was that that prayed for you? I don't know. He said he was uh, a super apostle. That is not Jesus. They did not minister that way. Why does God want you to work somewhere? George, He wants you to work somewhere so people can see your life. So you can see their life. So that when layoff time comes and they're biting their nails, you can smile and say, God gave me this one, He'll give me another one. Brother, do you need some money? I will help you. I will help you. You know why? I have a source of provision you don't have. I have no reason to fear. My God takes care of me. You want me to share my lunch with you? That's why I want you to work somewhere. We think He only wants us to work somewhere so we'll be blessed. This goes back to last week. How blessed are you? You're giving away? Or do you define blessings as what you receive? Because the Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Find somewhere to pour out. The world is dying while we are waiting. Turn with me to Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That's always a bad idea. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is the question at hand? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Is there any question we're talking about salvation and deeds here? Okay, well, no questions immediately jumped out at me. Nobody's rushed the pulpit, declared me a heretic, and thrown me down. What is written in the law? Isn't it great that when somebody asks Jesus a question, he says, what's the word say? If your leaders, if your teachers do not do that, if they say, oh, well, we found that, run, run. 
There are enough pastoral psychologists out there to pacify the masses, but they do not deliver you from death. Find out what the Word says. Many of you, in fact, Nick and Lindy Slaughter wrote me a letter here recently. Said that the people where they're at are utterly shocked when they look at them and say, where's that in the Word? They feel offended, confronted, put on the spot. They just learned it from their pastor. That's, they just learned it from their pastor, both the people there and Nick and Lindy. We should be the kind of people that are governed by the Word, not the latest self-help-me gospel, not the latest motivational speaker, not the latest program, not the latest prayer that you can frame on your wall, but by the Word. He asked a question, the most important question in life, that had to do with actions and it had to do with eternal life, and Jesus said, what is written in the law. He replied, how do you read it? He's assuming that he does. I wonder if he could say that to the American church. But let me go ahead and tell you, he can't. He can't. When 50% of our teenagers believe that Jesus sinned, 50% and 40% of those in church believe he sinned, what does that tell you is not happening? We're not reading the word. Parents, when's the last time you sat down with your kids and read them the Word? When's the last time you asked them to read it to you and you made sure they got it right? Then the, then the question becomes, are you really parenting? Oh, we're stepping on toes, huh? Are you really parenting if you are not doing your most basic obligation? Eric, my most basic obligation is to work so I can put a roof over their head and food in their mouths. Are you feeding them real food then? Because a lost person can give them Taco Bell every day. But it takes you, the priest in your home, to give them something that will feed them eternally. Are you feeding them the Word? Well, that's those youth leaders' job. The youth leaders' job cannot feed them enough to sustain them. If we don't get this right while our little ones are little, they will be uncontrollable teenagers. Take two pastors to wrestle them to the ground. And we're getting old, so we'd like you to get it right now. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Ooh, you believe all the right things. This is where the church is. The church answers correctly. But is that what the question was? The question was not... Do you know something? It was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was not, do I have the right answers? Isn't it funny that the first thing people ask for when they walk into a church or visit a church website is a doctrinal statement? Why? What difference does it make what they say they believe? Sometimes we're like this expert. We know the right words to say, but we don't really know the answer. Churchy rhetoric is no substitute for real understanding. We need to be careful that we don't merely try to justify ourselves by spouting the latest right doctrine. Our goal should be advanced to advance the kingdom of God, not say the right things. How do you inherit eternal life? You have to do the work of God. So well, you're talking about earning salvation. Get over yourself. That debate has been going on hundreds of years, and you know what? It's not scriptural. Not at all. 
When Jews wanted to know how to be saved, they said, what must I do? Because they believed that belief produced action, and actions reflected belief. The reason James is the most debated book in the New Testament, or was at the time of the canon, is because the church had already been Hellenized. With a great deal of emphasis on those first four letters, it crept in. It crept in. It takes a special kind of American hypocrite to talk about what we believe without being concerned with what we do. And to get mad at other people that talk about actions and say you're adding to the cross of Christ. Really? Have you even been there? How would you know? Can you be at the cross of Christ and leave doing nothing differently? Are you, are you kidding? Show me an example of that in the Word. Somebody who was powerfully saved by the blood of Jesus and there is no other kind of salvation and nothing about their life changed. They simply believed new things. Show me that example in the Word and then I will yield. Until that example is shown, I'm going to expect to see fruit on a tree before I call it a fruit tree. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Why not believe this? Do this and you will live. Well, do what? Do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbors yourself. Almost as if Jesus, I don't know, was a prophet. He's going to tell us a story that shows us how to do this. And I want to warn you, here comes the cliff notes. It's the little bullet points of, of the parable. He's going to outline exactly how you do this, and then he's going to say, as if we might have forgotten, after reading a paragraph or two, go and do likewise. The harvest is plentiful. Let's look at and see what the harvest field looks like in real life since you're not farmers. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. What does the harvest field look like? Well, the first thing is, it's full of people that are on the right road, but their direction is wrong. Oh, they go to church, but the direction of their lives is not towards Jesus. They know the right creeds, but the direction of their lives is not towards Jesus. They may claim to be rich. They may claim to be happy. They may claim that everything is alright and beg you not to look too deep, but if you do look deeply, you'll find they are half dead already. They've been stripped of all power, all righteousness. They've been beaten by the devil. Until they're waiting to die and proclaiming that they're alive. They have a form of godliness and they have no power. They can't walk on their own two feet, much less be in the business of rescuing others. That's what the harvest field looks like. Do you not see that all around you? Next time somebody tells you, Pray for my sons. Put them on the spot right there in the middle of wherever you are and say, let's pray now. You pray and I'll pray with you. Mm. Well, but I, I'm just uncomfortable. How can you be uncomfortable to talk to your best friend in front of somebody else who is a best friend? Right. So, well, I'm just not comfortable with public speaking. Who's talking about public speaking? We're talking about you, me, and Jesus. You begin to find out it's like a barometer for where the church is. 
How dare you call on someone? You might put them on the spot. I'm sorry. I thought we were the people that would stand against the gates of hell. I thought we were the ones that would let our heads roll before we would be embarrassed of Jesus. My first experiences with this are noticing that other people who were believers were embarrassed to talk about Jesus at volume in public. They had to whisper his name. I'm not ashamed to say the name of him. <laughs> so where? That's not me. Well, go rescue something that it is. How many lives you saved this month, this year? Are you asking for it? How can we say it doesn't exist? How can we say I haven't had the opportunity when Jesus says the harvest field is plentiful? Plentiful. It's the workers who are few. It's what the one pastor said, throw a bullet in your pocket and feel led. I can tell you one thing. You will never develop a taste for it if you don't try. I don't feel led to eat that. I bet not. It looks disgusting. But if you try it, you'll like it. You'll develop a taste for it. Meat stuffed grape leaves look horrible. They look disgusting. And if I didn't trust the man who gave it to me, I never would have ate it. But once I did, buddy, I think about those things. <laughs> I drive out of my way to get to them. Witnessing is not attractive to the flesh, but I trust the man who told me it was important. And now I've developed a taste for it. I look for it. I find it wherever I go. You tell me. How is that working in your life? And is there room for improvement? <coughs> going down the same road. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You got a relative? Somebody that you don't know to be born with the power from above? Don't think of a man here. Think of your relative. See, as long as it's just a member of humanity, what difference does it make? But when it's somebody that you love, when it's grandma, when it's grandpa, does that make a difference for you? A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. How is it that they just happen to be going that way? They're missing their divine appointments. I want to tell you something, though. Of course, we're going to read about the man that we call the Good Samaritan. You need to understand he was on the same road with the robbers that the other man was on. If you are not in the workplace with them, if you are not in the grocery store with them, if you are not with them, you're not on the same road. You might as well be on the other side. This is why it's important that we don't hide from the lost on our holidays. It's why it is important that we don't withdraw from every segment of society and go become Amish. When is the last time you heard about somebody being born again because an Amish person witnessed to them? And I admire the Amish. At least they do something with their belief. But if we don't mingle to some degree... How are you ever going to be there to find those that are beaten and stripped and robbed? You cannot sit in the barn and be reaping the harvest. You think you're serving the Lord of the harvest by sitting in the barn? 
It's like hanging out in the locker room, but thinking you're doing your coach a great favor. How silly. Oh, I know it's football Sunday. I'm supposed to have football with others. I can't tell you how much I don't care about a Super Bowl. Okay? Now, I will probably go to somebody's house this evening. I'll probably eat all of your food and laugh and tell you jokes and all kind of things. And I'll pretend to care about the game because everybody else does. But what I am beginning to think when I look at that stadium is how many of them are going to die and go to hell without ever hearing the word. They've heard the word, Eric, it's going out all over our nation. Really, which one? Chicken lure Jesus? The bless me Jesus? What gospel message have they heard? And is it enough to hear it only, or do you need to see it? Jesus said, do not believe me unless you see me do the work my Father does. See me. When's the last time you heard a Christian stand and say that? There was a time not long ago when a brother came to me and shared with me a story of not eating a taco and seeing a man dig through the garbage. And he gave him the taco and the man was blessed. What I'm looking forward to is an avalanche of those stories. An absolute avalanche of those stories. Otherwise, we can stand here and pray for revival every day. We can repent of the sin in our lives. And it's great. It cleans us up and it does nothing for them. Who washes a car to go hide it in the garage? God is cleaning you up so that you can be effective. So that you can hear from Him. So that you can smell His fragrance over your own stink. He's trying to move in our midst. What are we going to do about it? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him. He took pity on him. He took pity on him. Pity is something that you cannot see. But you know that he took pity on him based on his actions. And I'm telling you that pity starts when you begin to care more about what happens to them if you do nothing than what happens to you if you do something. <coughs> Is the war that goes on in your mind when you look at that jar over there? That jar is for the poor. When you look at the jar, is the war in your mind, but if I give this that's in my pocket now, I won't blah, 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 blah? How can we not have pity on the poor? How can we, not, how can we do that? How can we not have pity on the people that are around us? I'm not scolding you. I'm scolding us all. I'm scolding us all. I should never have to remind you that the jar is there or that the offering box is there. I should never have to do that. It should be your absolute joy. We need to look for these opportunities. And the fact that God has to tell us, go witness to that one. The fact that God has to move through pastors to tell us, give. Something's not working right. We're not firing on all cylinders. The living body of Christ does not have to be poked with a goad to do these things. It is our passion. Maybe that's why it's moving us from apathy to zeal. If we don't do something quick, we're going to live in an environment that you will not want your children and grandchildren to marry any of the people around you. We're going to live in that environment in another 20 years if we don't do something right now. The hour is late. It's urgent. Well, what kind of things should we do? He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. <laughs> Bandaging wounds is sitting, listening to people, 
thinking about what the Word of God says and pointing them to it. It's not just listening alone. It's not just pointing them to the Word of God alone. If you don't listen, you won't know where to point them. But listen to people's hurts. They will tell you. A few minutes goes by and they'll tell you, I was hurt in church. I was married to a pastor. He committed adultery. My neighbor was witnessing to me. They said they were Christians, but they looked at my kids in an unwholesome way. You'll hear it. I hear this stuff every week, day in and day out. You will hear it if you listen. How many times have you asked somebody, hey, how are you? And you could care less. Hey, how are you? And they started to tell you, and you're like, oh, geez. Get away from that one. I didn't mean that. I, it was just kind of a formal greeting. We're supposed to care, but we don't. I had an experience with a man in Christianity. When I asked him, hi, how are you? He told me, and it was never good. I'm going to be honest. I quit asking. I avoided it. I went everywhere I could. I, I, I did everything I could to stay away from him. But I've grown up in the faith now. What is that a cry for? Help. How do we sing Hosanna, 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 and ignore the cries for help? If somebody can't quit bragging on themselves, what is that a cry for? I'm insecure. I'm insecure. I need affirmation from God that I can't get from any man. Help me. Help me. Help me. Some girl can't quit showing her body to the whole world. What is that a cry for? Come on, we have to listen to the cry for help. And we have to care more about what happens to them if you do nothing than what happens to you if you do something. It's going on all around us. Have you ever seen a time in which it was easier to pick out? Why do you think a 14-year-old girl has a thong hanging out of her pants? Why do you think that? Well, she got bad parents and she's obviously not in church. I assure you, she probably is in church. Why do you think it is? Maybe she is not feeling the connectedness with Jesus that she should be feeling. How is she going to know if you don't show her? He went to him, bandaged his wounds, and pouring on oil and wine. That's the scripture. That's the anointing of the Holy Ghost. You hear what's wrong and you begin to be the voice of Jesus to them like God himself sent an ambassador to them. You think that's my job? Are you are, Really? It can't be my job. It can't be Matthew's job. The reason I'm taking the time to do this now is to empower you to do it. Somebody slipped and said, how many people have you invited to church, Eric? When I told him, how many people have you invited this week? That kind of defensiveness, it'll send you to hell. It really will. It's not correctable. You know what? I didn't say it. You know what I thought? How did you get here? How did you get here? Saints, we need to be movable. We need to be pliable. We need to delight in the Word of God. Not just hearing it, but doing it. We need to feel the attaboy from the Holy Ghost and not need it from a man. Then he put the man on his own donkey. For us, we could say our own Cadillac, our own Tundra, our own CRV, our own Suburban. Come on, does it make you uncomfortable think of picking somebody up? It does me. I keep my truck clean. Make you uncomfortable think about bringing them in your house, letting them use your shower, feeding them. You know who it doesn't make uncomfortable at all? Jesus. So, Eric, I mean, you're just talking about the homeless. I'm talking about those that don't know our Father. You think that it's only dirty people who need Jesus? 
I can tell you, there's some people dressed real clean that are dirty, dirty, dirty on the inside. Then he took the man and put him on his own donkey. If it's not sacrificial, it's not worthwhile. If it's not sincere, if it's not simply putting forth the gospel, it is not worthwhile. But do not think you can minister for the Lord without giving something of your own away. You want to save your life, you must lose it. Give it away. Took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Why would he do something like this? See, the problem with these stories is you've heard them so many times you're numb to them. You teach about those two silver coins all day and all night. We know all of the right stuff. Man, we can impress each other with the way that we can show shadows and types, the way I can show you theology. We can go into those Greek tenses and look at them and find their Hebrew cognates, and man, we can be amazed. But what difference does it make? Jesus said, do this and you will live. Put people on your own donkey. Pay their expenses. Care about them. Feed them. Bind up their wounds. Do this and you will live. Not believe this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. How many of you believe you're an object of mercy? I'm looking for a response here. How many of you believe you're an object of mercy? Mercy is not a feeling. Mercy is not a feeling. Mercy is an action. He had mercy on him because he showed him mercy. He didn't feel mercy. He didn't believe mercy. He showed it to him through tangible actions. The Lord is looking for workers, not just believers. In fact, if you believe and do not work, what good should you believe? i got one more scripture for you to turn to, and i got a few minutes to do it, and we're going to feed you here today. Actually, everybody here is going to be fed by everybody else here. What a novel concept. Can you imagine if every day was potluck? Can you imagine if every day was potluck? Would people resent you there because you never bring anything? If every day is potluck and it works like it should work, what do we all do? We share in each other's provision as given by God. Say, Eric, are you endorsing communism? No, I'm endorsing Christianity. You remove God from it and it doesn't work. It will not work because man's greed and man's apathy take over. But you inject Jesus into it. In fact, you let him be the source of it. And you can go out and gather a bunch and it won't be too much. You can go out and gather little and it won't be too little. You will have what you need every day. I never at any time in my life have given away more than we're giving away every single month right now. And never been a more uncertain time financially. It's almost like Jesus is trying to teach us to trust Him. To put Him to the test and see if this works. Not him who's being tested, though. Just like this expert in the law, it's us. He's already proven himself. Where are you with this? Turn with me to 1 Kings. You'll be in 1 Kings, verse 7. 17, chapter 17, verse 7. There, 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 there. 
There, there, there. There, there. The 17th chapter, 7th verse. There are all kind of ways to help people. You may not have a donkey to loan somebody. You may have no money to pay for their expenses in the end. I am believing that whatever you do have at your disposal, God will use. And that when you use what He's put at your disposal, He will give you more. I believe that. Not because He wants you to build a bigger barn, but because the harvest is plentiful and He wants you to go find more people. How about that? What if when you gave away $10 and you saw 100 your first thought was, wow, now I can go find 10 more people instead of, look how God blessed me. Do you think that would be a church God could use? Why are we always looking for the accumulation of something for us? It wars against what God's told you to do. Maybe the reason we're doing it is because it's all we've ever seen. Well, who's going to stand up and be different? What a great question, isn't it? I know from first-hand experience that a bunch of teenage kids, nobody who's making more than 6 or $7 an hour, can live and tithe and give offerings and <coughs> share each other's needs and expenses and support families doing it. I know that the most profitable time in my life spiritually, the men of God who were teaching me were poor, 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 but they also never lacked anything. Because God raised up whatever he had to raise up. I saw little red Chevrolet Blazer drive off and a man to tithe 70% of his check. He said, well, how did he do that and survive? Well, God worked it out to where he had a football scholarship and he only had to eat. That's all he had to do. Everything else was taken care of. So that was neat for him. <clears throat> Would you have done it? no mistake that the people that I see that move powerfully in God's power move powerfully in His demonstrated mercy in their lives. It's no mistake. I want to be in their number. You in King 17? Yes. Look at verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. You remember this story? God had caused a, a, a drought. Who announced the drought? Elijah. Elijah announced a drought. God sends him to a place where there's a brook, and the brook dries up. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. How humbling is that? I want you to go outside with the people of Israel. I want you to go to some Gentile foreigners. Uh, and look, just in case you didn't want to do it, the brook's now dried up, so you really don't have a choice but to do what I'm telling you. But how many of us have to be in that position? How many of you would never consider doing something for God unless you had no choice? I can tell you I would never consider letting Jennifer sit in pain for three or four days if I didn't have a choice. Unless I didn't have a choice. I wouldn't. That's not natural to me. What do you want to do? Can you imagine her poor parents watching this? They did wonderful. They were nothing but encouraging to me. But could you see that the thought could creep in? If she had married better, I bet they'd have health insurance. <laughs> if it was Abby, I might think that way. And yet we never would have saw the hand of God 
heal her supernaturally if we were not in desperate need. God caused a desperate need in Elijah's life so that he would go do what he was supposed to do. What happens if we avoid all desperate need? So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? How many of you are so proud that you would never tell anybody in this body if you needed something? I had to pry out of somebody's mouth the other day that they had a need. We had to call their wife to get their account number so we could deposit money in their account. Should we really have to work through that kind of pride? My favorite fundraising letter ever was Stephen Young. He said, I've listened to your messages. I can see that you're brothers, so let me come straight to the point. I need some money for the kingdom to work, and if you have any, could you send it? Best fundraising letter ever. It's the first check we write every single month. First check. Every single month. There is never a time we won't support him. Never. Does God have to work through your pride to show himself? I'm always disappointed when I find out after the fact somebody didn't have something. Well, we were just giving you a chance to hear from God. Well, thank you. Or you could have just opened your mouth. It's funny, you don't wait for me to hear from God, you know, uh, for everything else. Could it maybe just be a cloak for the fact that you're scared to show weakness? That you're scared to not have it all together? In the body of Christ form when we meet each other's needs? How many of you are comfortable in the position of helping others, but you don't want anybody to think you need anything? I know we got rid of most of them already, but a few of you left. <laughs> Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and, and bring me please a piece of bread. When men of God are called of God, we cannot be ashamed to ask for what we need. That's not just pastors. That's everybody in this room. Have you ever been in the position that you had something and you didn't know what to do with it and you prayed about it? And maybe because you really didn't have anything moving on you, you maybe went and bought a pocket knife or something. Funny how that one always comes to me, Matthew. If you don't know, I just like knives. And then you find out the next day that somebody... Didn't have groceries? Mm. Well, shame on you or shame on them? This defies all possible reason. They were in the middle of a drought that the Lord had used Elijah to proclaim, and now he's supposed to ask this foreigner who isn't in God's nation to provide for him. We never need to question God's reasons. All we need to do is trust his wisdom. You are not allowed to, to question God's methods or His reasons. You're only allowed to trust His wisdom. I have no idea how to bake a cake. I like to eat them. I don't know what goes in them. Uh, I could put something in it that's horrible. But I trust that Jennifer knows how to bake a cake, and if I ask her, I'm going to do exactly what she says to do. Because I trust her. I don't even have to know how it works. I just have to trust her. Because I've seen her make cakes. When you ask people to trust you, have they seen you? Have they seen you do what you're asking them to do? And when you 
have to trust God. Have you seen him do it? Well, I don't think there's a problem with him and his demonstration. If there's a break in the link in the chain, where do you think it is? Verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. The Lord whose God? Your God. She's a foreigner to God and he's a foreigner to her. I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She got no hope. She's under a sentence of death. You know what this is? The harvest field. He's just found himself on the same road with somebody who's stripped, naked, beaten, in need of help. This is the harvest field. You know what never happens? If he never asks her, if he never opens up and says, this conversation never starts. All real evangelism starts with the opening of your life for somebody else. All real evangelism does. How would they see God meet your needs if they don't know you have them? How would they see God move in your life powerfully if they're not familiar with your life at all? You know why people are drawn to TV ministry? Because it's not real. Even if it's real in their life, it's not real in yours. You know why it's not real in yours? You don't know them. You don't know them. That's not ministry. It might be telling you what to believe. And if the Lord was just looking for believers, that'd be great. But He's looking for workers. You will never learn from a man in a suit on TV that you only see for that 30-minute segment how you should live. You'll only learn how to believe. That's why it's not biblical. Not at all. You show me any pastor of a church here that had no connection with his people. Show me one. I like the way one brother said it. Shepherds should smell like sheep. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. First message of hope. He revealed the need. She revealed the need. And now he can present a hope because they are both in need. On the same road. One's headed the wrong direction, the other's headed the right direction. You beginning to see these parallels here? Yes. But it doesn't happen if they're not on the same road, if they haven't started a conversation, if they didn't both have a need. Too often the message of the gospel has been, Big me, little you! Too often the message has been, I have everything, you have nothing, let me tell you about all that I have! That's not evangelism. It might be some kind of demagogue, iconic worship. But it is not the gospel. The gospel is you're in need, I'm in need. Here's a message of hope. God will meet our need. Look how he does it for me and I'll show you how he can do it for you. That's the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus shared in our flesh. That's why he was made like us in every way. That's why he knew what it was to get tired, to get hungry, all of those things. And did God provide for him? And after God provided for him, did he provide for us? And didn't you learn from it? That is the message of the gospel. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me. From what you have. And bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and son. She already said she didn't have enough to do that. 
I will get right with God when I have more. You'll never get right with God because you're not going to have more. You're already showing you are disobedient with what you're given. You know, this is the number one reason that I hear that people are not financially obedient to the Word. Well, I had a rough month, I had a rough year, I had a rough decade, I will eventually get right. If you don't take from what you have this moment and get right, I want to tell you, you're never going to get right. Never. God required her to show trust before she saw provision. You understand that? Trust precedes provision. Precedes provision. You do for God, and then God will do for you. Otherwise, he's a genie at your command. Now, I've been young and stupid. I've done a lot of things I shouldn't do. I've told God this is a fleece, and really what it was was a way to leverage God. If you do what I want, then I'll do what you want. He scared me in my manipulative ways. He's got a way of doing that. I want to warn you, if you try to manipulate God, he's going to squash you. And the little pieces will learn to cry out, yes, sir. <laughs> Some of you really need to hear that message. You cannot manipulate God. I was a salesman, too. I know what an assumptive close is. Lord, you want to do this, right? It doesn't work. It does not work. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on this land. I want you to understand something. He found himself in the same position as her. They're both under drought, under a famine. He expressed a need. She expressed a need. So now they share something in common interest. He has hope that she doesn't have. So he begins to share with her. And then comes forth the word. If you are obedient to God, this is what will happen. Is this not the message of salvation? We both have a common need. Here is what I found. When we're obedient to God, He meets our needs. This never happens if there was not a drought. This never happens if He doesn't get on the same road with her. This never happens if He doesn't have the courage to speak or doesn't care. If this was half of the prosperity gospel, he simply would have said, give to me and you'll receive back a, a hundred times, but give it because I'm leaving. Right. He moves in with her. He shares her lot in life. His prophecy is tested by time, and he's going to share her fate. Come on now. That is evangelism. You're going to share their fate? You tell somebody that they're going to be healed in three days, or are you going to be with them on the third day? Look, I love prophetic ministry. But let's be real. How many times has somebody said this is going to happen and it didn't happen and they weren't anywhere to be found? Real evangelism is I will tell you and I will wait with you and we will share each other's faith. If we drown, we're going to drown together. But we're going to do it trust in Jesus. If we swim, we're going to do it together. We're going to do it trust in Jesus. You think back to the people that ministered in your life most powerfully, and I guarantee you that was it. And if it wasn't, then you need to consider that maybe you have an entitlement welfare mentality. You want others who are blessed to simply bestow upon you. That's not friendship, that's servitude. Hmm. The message to the foreigner who had no hope was obey the God of Israel. And he will be your provision. The provision does not come from the brook that can dry up. It comes from heaven. 
Verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. She didn't just believe him, she did it. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken by Elijah. Isn't that amazing? When you do what God says, it works. It works. So did she get saved? Sometimes, even when God provides in a drought, it's not enough to persuade the lost. But thanks be to God, He's not willing that any should perish. Because He keeps working with us to cause us to progressively come closer and closer and closer. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Is there anything in this narrative that would... I mean, had Elijah been beating the kid around the day before? Had he been telling the woman she was a sinner? When you trust God in the presence of people who don't, the Holy Ghost is there to convict the world of sin. He's already doing that. You don't have to spend time doing it. He's doing it. You know what you have to do? Share their fate. Share their lives. Live with them. Be around them. And then here comes the big one. Be willing to let them hurt you and offend you. The big joke is we call this doormat ministries. People come in, clean their feet on us, describe to us that we're bad fathers, bad pastors, that our church would be bigger if we just did blah, 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 blah. They'll kick us and hit us anywhere they can. And by they, sometimes, I mean you. And in the process, somewhere, if you refuse to be offended, if you refuse to be hurt, you love them anyway, keep pointing to the truth, you start to see things happen. It's a little bit like a teenager who knows everything and declares his parents are stupid until he has children. And then as he has children, what do you find them coming back and doing? I'm so sorry, Ma. I mean, give you such a hard time. I'm so sorry, Dad. And a lot of us have had that relationship. That's how ministry works. You have to share your lives with each other. Some only used us as a doormat and then just left. That's okay. That's part of it. We're workers in the harvest. It's up to the king. It's up to the king. All I have to do is be obedient. The people of God always suffer attack from the lost. Notice that she mentioned that his presence reminded her of sin. Our presence in the lives of the lost is used by God to remind them of sin. Finally, she lays the very worst insult on him. She accused him of killing her son, even though her son and her were only sustained by the word Elijah had spoken. Isn't that a nice one? Why is she alive? When he met her, she was ready to die. When she met him, he was ready to die. I'm sorry. The son and the woman were ready to die. Why are they alive right now? Because Elijah spoke the word to them. She's forgotten all about that and she's accusing him of killing her son. Your obedience to God and kindness to the lost often looks unappreciated. Hang in there. This is where many would have just gotten offended and went home. But God requires us to love without limit. He requires us to endure, hear me ladies on Facebook, without retaliating. He requires it. So somebody says that you're worthless, your motives are bad, you're this, that, and the other, what do you do? 
Well, one thing you cannot do is retaliate. Figure out how to turn the other cheek to love them. Somebody writes you a letter, says how badly you destroyed their life. Write back, say, there's no excuse. I'm horribly sorry. God forgive me. I want to tell you about the mercy that he's had in my life. Not how great I am. I want to tell you about how much I deserve to die and how much mercy's there. Is there anything that I can do to bring you hope? Is there anything I can do to help you? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. People are moved when they see that you're in the same tragic shape they're in, but for the grace of God. And they won't believe you if it's only statements. They have to see it, which means you've got to endure the drought with them. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. All too often we're only willing to help people as long as they're there and we're here. We'll travel into their situation and say, hey, you need to do this, this, and this. Clean your room, okay? And then we'll go back to our nice, neat, pristine thing. But the gospel we read about the other night in Spiros of Hades' book, Was Christ God? Jesus climbed down into a hole, picked up a man, and brought him back out of the hole. The gospel is not going into someone's filth and telling them you need to do this better. The gospel is pulling them out of their filth and into your clean, nice spaces. In other words, you have to bring hurtful people into your life and not be hurt by them. You have to do what Romans 12 says, overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That's hard, isn't it? It actually requires you to be dead to do it. Dead. But isn't that what you said when you were baptized? I've died to my old life that I might be raised to walk a new life in Christ. To win the lost, we must be willing not only to endure harsh treatment, but also take the spiritually dead right into our personal lives. Let them get a close-up view of our lives. This is why TV ministry is no ministry at all. I'm thankful for it. I'm glad it's there. It does serve a purpose. But it is not serving the meat and potatoes gospel to people. Because you're not in their lives and they're not in your lives. At best, it's wise sayings that we can adhere to. I love Joyce Meyer. I'm not picking on her here. I'm picking her because I like her ministry. How many times you quoted Joyce Meyer and said, Well, Joyce Meyer says this. Well, Joyce Meyer, that's awesome. Does she help you move? Did she help you move? Did she visit you in the hospital? Okay, then that's not deed-based evangelism. That's instruction, it's teaching, it's wonderful. But it is not the rubbing shoulders with the lost that gets life on them. Do you think you can be pastored by somebody from a thousand mile distance? It cannot happen. The reason we're so comfortable with it is we get to take all of the good from them without ever being held accountable or seeing any of the bad. That's why we're comfortable with it. It fits our American individualism. I pick and choose what I want. And I change the channel when I want to. And nobody sees in my home. Nobody's calling me on the carpet. Nobody is standing there with me. It doesn't work. It does not work. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with? Where was he? He was staying with her. 
I'm just like you. I'd a whole lot rather drop off the drug addict at the rehab. Hmm. But what if God is calling you to mentor them? It's no mistake that God's been training us for years by letting people stay in our house. We never have long periods of time without people in our house. This is exactly what the gospel is designed to do. But it's easy with you because I like you. Is he calling us only to save the ones that we like? The ones that are pretty like Brandon? <laughs> the ones that are fun to hang out with like Gabe? How many of you have lived with me? We all like each other. Is he not also wanting to save those who are a different race than us? Who are a different occupation than us? What is mercy? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Three times he stretched all that he had out on all that this man had. That doesn't mean he reached in his pocket and threw some change with disgust. It doesn't mean he said, well, look, you know, uh, we'll hold a special offering for you and then we don't want to see you again. Okay? He took all that he had and laid it across all that that man had so that of what he had, he could fill in the deficits in what that man didn't have. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is just like the Good Samaritan who pays all of that man's expenses out of his. He took from what he had and met the need in the man where he didn't have. The reason he lays on him is there's life in him. And every area that there's life in him and not in the other person, he's giving of his life. You know what evangelism is? It's when you're giving of your life to someone. It's when whatever deficit they have, you're trying to meet that deficit to show them life. What we've reduced evangelism to is believe what I'm telling you. That's not evangelism. You will never find an example of an evangelist that was not living in the place that he was preaching during the time he was preaching. To us, evangelism is I'm going to travel to that city and speak then come back home. To them, evangelism was I am going there I will live among them, eat with them, do what they do, let my peace rest on them, and they will have the life in them that I brought with me. What is evangelism to you? Then the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. If we want to see the spiritually dead raised, we must be willing to be uncomfortably close with them. This process of rubbing shoulders with them and stretching out on them, so to speak, will allow the power of life in you to rub off on them. If you don't give up after the first encounter, remember, it took even Elijah three times. All the miracle of provision in the world had not been enough to convince this woman, so quit talking about prosperity gospel. The only thing that begins to convince this woman is when she sees her dead son alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. God caused that boy to come to life and the woman is suddenly saying, Now I know. I want to tell you, church, God is raising up people. 
He's raising up people right here in our midst. I read you the quote from the book, The hinges of the door of history swing on the ordinary lives of people who are making extraordinary decisions. Do something extraordinary this week. Extraordinary means extra or above the ordinary. Show some serious love at a cost to yourself, to someone else, and watch and see if life does not eventually result. It took Elijah three times. It might take you some persistence, but it works 100% of the time. If that's not true, you need to examine how you got here and why you're here. Because I think that you are appointed to be here. And that God is raising you up as a worker in the harvest. Not an adherent, not a believer, a worker in the harvest. Get your eyes off of Eric and what I did or didn't say right. And sit down with yourself and say, am I working in the harvest or am I just existing? And as we begin to work the harvest fields, we will see dead raised. Stand to your feet. This message was called, Do This. Do This. I'm telling you, do this. I don't think it's possible that you sat in here and not one instance came to your mind. Not one thing of something that you could do. You will be held accountable for every instance like that that comes to your mind and you persist in unbelief and don't do. And I can tell you, the deeper it hurts, the harder it is, the more God is pleased with it. He delights in the death of His saints because it means His life dwells in them. I want to pray? Yes. Y'all join hands. God wants to use those who are willing to endure a drought. He wants to use those who refuse to question His reasoning and they're just obedient. He wants to use those who will go outside of their normal circle. He wants to use those who don't quit or get offended. He wants to use those who will bring people into their personal space. He wants to use those who are willing to rub shoulders with the dead that they might have life. He'll do this and he will change one life at a time in our midst. One at a time. And everyone's worth it. Mighty God, Lord, we're asking that these words would not fall on deaf ears. Lord, that I would be held accountable for having spoken them and having lived them. I invite your correction in my life because I desperately desire to get this right. Lord, I'm asking for mercy in my brothers' and sisters' lives where they have not gotten this right, even as you've shown me mercy. But Lord, that we would resolve this moment to take a new stand that we would not turn a deaf ear to those that have a sentence of death in their heart. Lord, reveal them all around us. We're having trouble opening our eyes, Lord. So we're asking that you would open our eyes, that we might see the harvest and work in it. 
we commit to you this day that we will be obedient and we will look for your harvest everywhere. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Alright, now round two that's not on the tape. I am proud of you. We've had more guests here in the last few weeks than we've had in the previous few weeks. That's because this message is beginning to get in you. Do it more and more and more. Amen? Amen. Let's eat and let's eat well.